You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I once again have an extra special guest, and I really mean an extra special guest. Dr. Mark Mobius is a legend in the world of emerging market and frontier investing. He's one of the first people, first Americans who went out and actually started kicking tires and looking at various companies all around the world. He's been doing this so long that when he first began, there were only six investable countries that you could put your money into. The rest of the world either didn't have public companies or public markets. You couldn't get cash in and out. There weren't custodians. It's amazing that this is the guy that essentially created EM. There were a couple of other folks uh, doing something like this, but no one quite the way that Dr. Mark Mobius uh, did. I I found this conversation to be absolutely fascinating. I had like another three hours worth of questions for him. We we barely uh, got through an hour. If you're at all interested in what the process is like of doing EM investing, what you find that either makes you more enthusiastic about a company or a company you're enthusiastic that when you go and kick the tires, you start to find out that, hey, this isn't as presented. Um, this is just an absolutely uh, tour de force fascinating conversation. So with no further ado, my interview with Dr. Mark Mobius. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week, my extra special guest is Dr. Mark Mobius. He is the founding partner of Mobius Capital Partners. Uh, Previously, he spent 40 years working and traveling in emerging market and frontier markets. Before Mobius launched in 2018, he worked with Franklin Templeton Investments for more than 30 years, where he was executive chairman of the Templeton Emerging Market Groups. During his tenure there, he helped to expand the assets under management from $100 million to over $50 billion throughout Asia, Latin America, Africa, and Eastern Europe. Uh, He ran a series of open-end, closed-end, and private uh, EM funds, including private equity funds. Uh, He has also been on the World Bank's Global Corporate Governance Forum, uh, Dr. Mark Mobius, welcome to Bloomberg. Thank you. It's great being with you. So that is quite a storied career. Let's start in the early parts of it. You you took a very different route than most people in finance. You worked at a talent agency. You were a communications teacher, a political consultant. And am I reading this right? Did did you actually market Snoopy merchandise in Asia? Yes, I did. That's right. Uh, when I was in Hong Kong, I had a consulting firm, and one of my clients was uh, looking for people to manufacture products. So she had uh, – it was a company in San Francisco called Determined Productions. They had the rights for all of the Snoopy merchandise, all the Peanuts merchandise. And she asked me to look for manufacturers in Asia. And one day I said, why don't you start selling in Asia? And they didn't think about that. So they said, why don't you do it? And, of course, that's how I got involved in distributing these products in Asia, or at least in Hong Kong and the greater China area. So is that how a kid from Hempstead, you grew up like 45 minutes from where I am right now, is that how you got involved in international business and investing? 
and I happened to wait before that because I got a scholarship to study in Japan after I got my master's degree at, at BU. Um, and um, uh, that really changed my life because, you know, the culture shock of being in Japan, completely different culture, uh, an incredible country growing very rapidly at that time. Uh, that was really what changed me, and I decided to go back. I got my uh, Ph.D. at MIT and then went right back to Asia and started working. So BU Masters, Kyoto postgraduate work, MIT, Ph.D. You also studied at Wisconsin, Syracuse, New Mexico. That seems to be a very heavy focus on education. It was. I was a professional student. <laughs> I really didn't want to leave a university, uh, and that's the reason why I did a sort of round-robin of these different universities. But then finally when I got my Ph.D., I said, okay, let's, uh, let's get real. Let's find out what I you know, what I should be doing in this world. And, and how did you end up at the Mega International Investment Trust in Taiwan? Oh, that was, yeah, International Investment Trust uh, was a, I, before that I was working for a broker in Hong Kong. Uh, it was a British broker, Vickers de Costa, and they sent me to Taiwan to open an office and also sit on the board of uh, a joint venture they had with local banks and some other British firms, which was the very first investment management firm in Taiwan called International Investment Trust. Um, and eventually the guy that was running it left and I took over. So I became the head of that company, which they launched the Taiwan ROC Fund, which huh. I think uh, the remnants of it are still listed in New York, I believe. Wow. So over the course of your career, you've traveled well over a million miles. You've been to 112 countries. I have to ask, what are some of your favorite places to travel, and what are some of the favorite foods you've eaten? You know, it's really interesting when I rack my brains and try to figure out where I like it the best. I really can't come up with an answer because every place I've been, I've liked in some way or another. But Probably, if you ask me right now, uh, where would you like to be? And probably would be the beach at Rio de Janeiro in Brazil. <laughs> that might be uh, a place that would uh, be nice to be. Or uh, a beach at Cape Town, South Africa. I, I love outdoor life. I, leave, I love beaches and that sort of thing. But frankly, I lived in Japan and Korea and Taiwan uh, Philippines. I love all these places. I really can't think of any one that's particularly favorite. Let, let's talk about food, because I recall you hearing you once say that you ate scorpions on toast. <laughs> is that right? That does not that's sound... right. Is that sort of like uh, soft-shell crabs? What do they actually taste like? Actually, that was in Singapore, in a, in a restaurant that specialized in special, um, sort of medicinally beneficial <laughs> foods supposedly, and this is scorpion on toast. It was sort of like uh, eating crispy shrimp, but it had a little bit of a bite to it, uh, you know, a little bit of a, <laughs> a stingy taste to it. And, and it I assume they remove like the poison first, or is that, yeah. is that just digestible? Yeah, they, do, they do remove most of the poison, but some of the sting was still there. It's, it was very similar to uh, in Japan, if you've ever had fugu. Mm -hmm. is the blowfish. Yes. Uh, it still has this tinging sensation on your lips, which is supposed to be part of the experience. <laughs> I, I understand Singapore has become the food capital of Asia. What, what's it like there? It is true that Singapore has an incredible variety of dishes because you've got not only all the Chinese cuisines, which, as you know, are very varied. I mean, you've got uh, cuisines in China that go from very, very spicy to very bland and so forth. But then you have the Malaysian and Indonesian foods, and added to that, of course, you have the Indian foods. So it is true. It's, uh, it, uh, Singapore is quite varied uh, in its menu. Huh. Quite mouth-watering. So let's talk a little bit about Franklin Templeton. No less than Sir John Templeton asked you to run their emerging markets division in 1987. Tell us what EM was like back then. I have to think the world has changed a lot in the ensuing 30-plus years. 
Well, that's for sure. I mean, in 1987, I was sitting there in Taiwan running this uh, uh, the uh, the fund management company that was doing the Taiwan Fund, uh, International Investment Trust, and I get a call from uh, actually one of the deputies of John Templeton. I had made presentations to him in his space in Nassau, Bahamas, a number of times, and I guess he remembered me. And uh, as you know, at that time, emerging markets were just, the the term was coined uh, by the uh, International Finance Organization. And um, they had had launched an emerging markets fund, and then Templeton said he wanted to do the same thing. So he approached me and said, let's raise $100 million in New York, uh, and do this emerging markets fund. Mm. Uh, and it was a great temptation for me because it enabled me to really expand out of Taiwan into something really exciting. But it was a tough decision as well because we, I really didn't know what I was getting into. And uh, we opened a small office in Hong Kong. Uh, I, had, I hired two analysts, two Chinese analysts, who, by the way, stayed with me for the 30 years I was in practice. Wow. And, yeah, and we started with only six countries. You must remember, in those days, most countries did not welcome foreign investment. Uh, They were also either socialists or communists, like China and Russia. Uh, Eastern Europe was out of the question, of course. So we had only six markets in which to invest. And then we started expanding. Gradually, markets opened up. And eventually, we were investing in something like uh, 70 different countries around the world. Do you recall what the original six com- countries were? They were uh, Hong Kong, of course, Philippines, Malaysia, Singapore, Thailand, and Mexico. Uh-huh. No Japan, no South Korea. That's right. No Japan, no South they Korea. Were considered, they were no longer considered EM countries. No, actually, South Korea was, but it was closed for one reason or another. There were difficulties in getting in. You must remember, you know, the whole idea of getting a custodian, Mm-hmm. to safe keep your securities. All of these technical issues were uh, there. And Japan, of course, had it graduated into a developed country by that time. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. So back in the 1980s, I'm going to assume there was no remote access. It was always boots on the ground. Is that how research was done? Oh, that's for sure. (laughs) Don't forget, no internet, no laptop computer, no uh, cell phones. 
Um, you know, the technology has really changed things tremendously. So tell us, what do you learn from traveling as opposed to just a phone call, assuming you can actually call anybody? Well, you know, uh, it's true that we're able to do a lot on the phone these days, and particularly with video conferencing, because you can see the people. But there's nothing like being in a country, smelling the smells that you get, uh, looking at the people, getting a feeling for how people are living. Uh, and then you walk into a company, you, you look around, you observe uh, what the nature of the company is like, what is the morale of the staff, et cetera, et cetera. So there's nothing that beats that, being on the ground and seeing for yourself what's going on. Um, so we always think that it's important to be traveling and visiting companies as much as possible. So let's talk a little bit about your process. Is it top-down? You start in a country and then dig into individual companies, or do you uh, go bottoms-up, start with the company, and then work your way through that local uh, either country or region? Well, we like to say that we're bottom-up uh, investors in the sense that we look at the companies intensely, uh, but that doesn't mean we ignore the macro, the top-down uh, approach, uh, because obviously, you know, let's say if we wanted to invest in Sri Lanka today, uh, obviously you'd have to look at what's happened to the currency, what's happened to interest rates, what the government's doing, what kind of restrictions are taking place, uh, for foreign investors to invest, that sort of thing. But after those critical issues, currency, uh, ability to move money in and out, then we dig in to the individual company because that's the key. Uh, because one of the things I've found over the years that a company can survive in a very difficult environment, and you shouldn't be afraid to go into a country where the environment is not ideal, as long as you can get money in and out. That's, mm -hmm. that's really the key. Even the currency, if the currency is uh, uh, declining or getting very, very weak for one reason or another, there still are opportunities because, for example, an export-oriented company can do very well in such an environment because they're earning in dollars and their costs are in local currency. So uh, I would say, yeah, we're more ground-up, and more fundamentally company-oriented in the way we approach things. So today I could fly into a different country where I don't speak the local language, use my iPhone with Google Translate or any one of a dozen other translation apps, and be able to communicate with people. What did you do back in the 80s and 90s? I, I'm assuming you don't speak dozens and dozens of languages. What happens when you show up and you're not fluent? Well, that's a, the very interesting and uh, very th good thing that we found when we traveled and went to these countries is that you always found people who spoke English, particularly when you were visiting listed companies, companies listed on various stock exchanges, which is where we were looking. Uh, inevitably, in every company, you would find somebody who's going to be able to translate for you. And more often than not, the top management were English-speaking, English-educated, uh, you know, so they were. it was quite easy to get information and get face-to-face -face communications with these people. There's some exceptions, but not that often. It was quite good and quite easy to get uh, people to communicate. Uh, and even if the company uh, officials did not speak English, we were able to find translators easily enough. And, and who else did you speak to? I mean, obviously you spoke with management, but, but did you speak to local customers or, or workers at, at various places? How comprehensive was your boots-on-the-ground uh, due diligence? Well, that's one thing we found, uh, much to, to our chagrin, that don't talk to just the top management. We made many mistakes by just talking top management, but you've got to talk to the staff talk to the customers, talk to competitors. Competitors are a great source wow. of information because if you have a competitor who's speaking very highly of the company, that's a pretty good sign of the quality of the company you're talking about. Uh, and then we do also talk to government officials. You know, are there any transgressions on the part of the company or any problems in the industry? 
So uh, you really have to open up to a wide variety of sources. And by the way, that's one of the advantages of being on the ground as well. Hmm, To say the least. So when we look at the environment today, active buy-side managers, they use a lot of financial models. They use big data. They have the ability to crunch a lot of economic assumptions. What was it like in the 1980s and 90s? I'm going to assume you didn't have access to all that modern uh, technology and AI. That's right. It was not available. Of course, don't forget, this was the age before MIFID, you know, the MIFID uh, mm-hmm. program where you had to separate brokerage fees and research. Uh, and in those days, uh, we were able to get an awful lot of information free of charge uh, from brokers who we were dealing with. Because you might not say free of charge because we're paying them brokerage commission, but uh, we were going to give them orders anyway. So um, it was very easy to get information uh, a lot of research from brokers who are doing research. And there are also uh, local research institutions who produce research. So uh, it, gradually the the knowledge built up. Of course, at the beginning, in 87, there was almost nothing available. But uh, by 1995, 96, that time, uh, there was a lot of information flowing out of these various firms. Hmm. Really quite fascinating. So let's talk a little bit about um, traveling to different countries and hunting down specific companies. What do you recall as a particularly spectacular investment that you discovered after traveling to a country and were just really surprised by what you found researching a company? Uh, Probably the best example was in China. Um, That was when we discovered a company that in China that made the gears for wind power companies. It was about uh, 15 years ago. That's when, you know, the whole area of wind power was coming up strong. And this company was doing incredible work. We visited the factory, and I noticed that the machine tools they were making were top-notch, you know, automated machine tools, and they were doing very high-quality work according to their customers. So we decided we'd invest in that company, and uh, uh, that turned out to be an incredible investment. It was, uh, you know, at the double, triple price we paid. So that was probably one good example of, you know, doing on-the-ground research and finding something that other people were not noticing. And by the way, I think that's one of the uh, features of uh, good investing is finding something that other people are not finding. In other words try to discover a company that has not been yet so-called discovered by the market. What what about the opposite? Did you ever show up somewhere excited about a specific company and only to discover, hey, this isn't what we were hoping for? Oh, many, many, many times. Uh, And, of course, many times we were fooled by uh, the information we were getting, Um, and, you know, there were very, very missteps along the way. It's, 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 it is the feature of investing anyway, as you know. But in emerging markets, you have to be special and be very, very extra careful. So, so when you started doing this in the late 80s, was anyone else from the United States or other U.S. investment firms actually traveling the world looking at companies? You're sort of the Indiana Jones of this. How long did it take for other investment firms to say, hey, we need an EM or a developed XUS um, fund, and we need someone like Mobius out kicking the tires? Well, it took about five years for, you know, the field to grow where, you know, once they saw the results that we were getting, a lot of people began to jump on the bandwagon. You must remember that the pioneer on this was the... IFC, the International Finance Corporation, they started emerging markets institutional fund about a little earlier than we we started our fund. So they were on there, and as you know, they were the precursor to the index because this Capital International was uh, the they were the people that were doing researches of companies all around the world. So you started venturing into Africa way earlier than just about everybody else. What led you to discover 
that continent, and, and how have the results been? Well, you know, as uh, the assets expanded, we really had to find new opportunities everywhere. And Africa was wide open. It was just, uh, there was so much there. And, of course, visits, initial visits there really excited us because we realized this is ground that has not been uh, tilled in any direction. Uh, lots of uh, opportunities where there's no information, which is an advantage because if you're on the ground, if you're able to travel these places and get information, then you have an edge on the, the, any competitor that wants to come in. So I, I saw tremendous opportunities in places like South Africa, in Nigeria, uh, in Kenya, and, and of course Africa uh, is so huge. There's so many countries, there's tremendous opportunities. Of course, the big challenge was to find a equity market, a stock market, right. and liquidity. Of course, one of the biggest challenges you get, of course, is liquidity, getting enough uh, liquidity to be able to invest significant amounts of money. You had to be able to move in and out and not completely disrupt uh, the price or the market. Exactly. And by the way, that was one of the reasons why we got involved in private equity, because we found so many of these opportunities. But uh, some of them, of course, were not listed. Some of them were listed, but there was no liquidity at all. And we decided, hey, why don't we do a private equity fund where, you know, the holding period for the clients would be five, six, seven years. Then we can develop these companies uh, and bring them to the market with more liquidity as we expand. So that that was a, a very, very good move for us. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common... It's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. And anything stand out as a, a particularly exceptional or shocking story that didn't involve finance or a company when you were uh, when you were traveling all over the world? I have to imagine there were some pretty memorable snafus along the way. Well, we got caught in a revolution in the, in Philippines where they're shooting at the hotel, and we were able to get out, uh, luckily by helicopter from the roof of the hotel. That was one example, <laughs> but uh, they were few close calls like that, but uh, never deterred us. For some reason, maybe we were too innocent. We felt that, uh, you know, we have to roll with the punches, so to speak. Hmm. But uh, there's always some kind of turmoil going on. Uh, as you know, I was recently in Sri Lanka, and uh, 
you know, you can still work and you can still visit companies, but uh, meanwhile, people are demonstrating on the street. Wow. That, that's that's pretty amazing. So let's talk a little bit about emerging markets versus the United States. This, I think, the 12th or 13th year prior to 2022, where uh, the U.S. has outperformed emerging markets. I think that's the longest run we've seen in, in a number of decades. What's it going to take for EM to make its comeback against the United States in 2022? Maybe this is the year. That's a, that's a great question. Um, one thing you've got to realize is that the world has changed to the extent that a lot of the emerging markets growth is now in the United States because U.S. companies are manufacturing and selling and buying from emerging countries. Right. When we started in 1987, the whole premise of going into emerging markets was to capture the growth because these countries were... These were the low- and middle-income countries on a per capita basis. Uh, they were growing at more than double that of the developed countries, U.S., Japan, Europe, Australia, New Zealand. Uh, now what's happened is that a lot of these companies listed in the U.S. might even be called emerging market companies. For example, let's take Apple. Now what percent of their manufacturing is done in Asia, let's say, or elsewhere? And what percent of their sales are in emerging countries like China. So uh, it's become much more difficult to define what is an emerging market. And if you travel uh, to some of these countries, you'll be amazed at the growth, at the way they've developed, uh, and you know, just, just the infrastructure is just uh, incredible what's happened in many of these countries. So it's become more and more difficult to define specifically what is an emerging market company. Um, and even the definition of country, emerging market country, is blurred. For example, let's say Korea. Korea was a very poor country when we started in 1987. Today, it ranks as one of the, on a per capita basis, one of the richer countries. Right. So uh, the Koreans have also always been saying recently that they're not an emerging market country. They're more a developed country, which is, I think rings true. So do you still do the same uh, degree of traveling you were doing 25, 30 years ago? Are you, you know, on the road eight months a year? What, what's it like uh, today? Well, I try to travel as much as I can, but with COVID, it's been so difficult. Uh, thankfully, things are loosening up and I'm able to travel. Uh, I base myself now in Dubai and, of course, I have a place in Singapore, but Singapore has been so restrictive. Thankfully, they're opening up, uh, and other countries are beginning to open up. Recently, as I said, I've been in Sri Lanka, in uh, Thailand, um, and I'm trying to get out to more countries as they open up and they get rid of these lockups. Of course, China is off the chart right. in terms of uh, restrictions, so that's out of the question at this stage. But, yes... I'm trying to travel as much as I can. So Dubai and Singapore, you know, if you're bi-coastal, if you're in New York and London or New York and San Francisco or L.A., that's what they would call it. What do you call have, splitting your time between Dubai and Singapore? Are those just base of operations for when you're um, shooting off to those parts of the world? Yeah, Singapore is great for visiting the rest of Asia. You know, they're mm -hmm. great... Uh, a lot of it has to do with the airlines. Singapore Airlines has got great connections all over right. Asia. And, and it's a great airline. Great airline. And Emirates is even a better airline in some <laughs> ways. Uh, Emirates goes all over the world. And I'm able to come here to Europe. I'm now in London and to the U.S. very easily. Uh, excellent airlines. By the way, there's two good examples of mm -hmm. companies in what were emerging markets, or maybe you could still call them emerging markets, that have really surpassed uh, the U.S. airlines in terms of service, quality, et cetera, et cetera. So, uh, yeah, these two bases are very good, partly because of time zones in, in uh, Dubai. The time zone is very convenient, but also because of the convenience of travel. Really quite quite interesting. So so let's talk about some of the bigger issues going on 
um, globally today. Uh, Russia has become a bit of an anathema uh, internationally, given the invasion of Ukraine. Uh, do we just write down our Russian stocks to zero? Are they ever going to be investable again in our lifetimes, or, or are they just a total pariah state at this point? Well, in our fund, we were out of Russia uh, about a year ago because we didn't like the corporate governance issues mm -hmm. that were popping up. You know, the oligarchs were taking over a lot of the companies. But I'm not writing off Russia by no means. I think there'll be a day when we'll be able to go back in. And, in fact, I personally keep an account in Russia. And, of course, the stocks is a very small account, but the stocks in that account are way down. Uh -huh. But I think eventually this will come back. Uh, but for our fund, we we will not go in until things change dramatically in Russia. And, is that going to require Putin to, to leave power in order for the country to be investable again? Or can something significantly change to rehabilitate their image in the world? It'll probably mean uh, Putin uh, leaving, probably, because it would require a complete about-face. And it would require all of the Western countries to uh, stop the sanctions. Because you must remember, even if I wanted today to invest in a Russian stock, I couldn't do it because the custodians right. are not operating there, you know? Yeah, talk, um, about, talk about being canceled. Uh, it looks like very much like Russia was. Now, previously, you were on the board of directors of Luke Oil. Um, I'm assuming that ended some time ago, if I recall reading correctly. And you were also involved with OMV Petrom in Romania. Tell us a little bit about those experiences. Yeah, OMV Petrom came out about, uh, uh, that was about 10 years ago. Um, we got the contract to run the country fund for the Romanian government. It was quite an unusual situation where they wanted to compensate people who had lost uh, their assets during the Cetesco period. And they put about 20, 30% of all the government companies into a fund. And uh, we won the contract to run that. And one of the companies was uh, Petrom. Uh, and OMB, the, Russia, the uh, Austrian company, uh, came in as a majority shareholder of that company. And we were still holding it. And they asked me to be on the board. So we were uh, looking at and getting very deeply involved in many of these uh, Romanian companies, and it's a great example of where a country, you know, took the decision to s sort of privatize state-owned companies that were previously very corrupt and made a tremendous success of it. And also uh, uh, kudos go to the European Union because uh, being a member of the European Union, whenever we went to court, there were tremendous amounts of court battles. Uh, the judges would be looking over their shoulders to Brussels. So we were often uh, treated much fairly than we would have been if they weren't the members of the European Union. All right. So so let's talk a little bit about China. Last year, they pretty much went after their own um, tech sector. Uh, do we First, do we still consider China an emerging market? And second, are, are they another country that's becoming increasingly uninvestable? Uh, yes, it's still an emerging country, defined as a low- and middle-income country, so that's definitely there. Uh, the problem with China, of course, it's gotten too big uh, in the, uh, the spectrum of emerging market economies because if you look at the emerging markets indexes, you'll find that it's 30% or so China. So whenever China gets hit, emerging markets look terrible, <laughs> And uh, that's the reason why a lot of people have been sort of turned off, because, as you know, so many people are buying ETFs and index funds. Um, but uh, it's a good example of where uh, government policy can have a very big impact on your companies. And the measures that China took against the large tech giants in China really uh, damaged the market uh, dramatically because of the impact of those big companies on the China index. So there are cases where you've got to pay attention to those macro moves by the governments, but it, you have to focus on the economic 
uh, or financial aspect rather than purely political aspects, unless, and this is a very important point, unless the political structure begins to change against free enterprise, against companies. And a good example of that uh, was in Venezuela. We were in Venezuela right. when Chavez came into power, and he started talking about taking over companies, about nationalizing companies, and immediately we got out because we realized that this was not going to be very conducive. And uh, it's good we did get out because uh, companies that we owned uh, really crashed, and, and it was a very bad situation. So, huh. But that doesn't... Recently, that hasn't happened that often, but China is probably a good example where government policies can really have a very damaging effect on individual companies. Uh, what about inflation? It's been a giant topic here in the U.S., and we've seen numbers around the world ha have spiked up. How, how does inflation affect emerging markets? Well, you know, the great thing about inflation is that if you're an equity investor, in other words, an investor in companies that can adjust their pricing uh, in line with higher prices, then um, inflation is not a problem. In fact, sometimes it's an advantage because you see prices moving, and if you're in a company, as I mentioned, with that pricing power, you can do very, very well because they're moving up prices at a rapid rate. It's interesting, if you look at the correlation between inflation numbers and, let's say, the S&P 500, there's very low correlation uh, in those numbers, and that's probably one of the reasons, because uh, good companies, you know, that are adjusting their prices in line with the devaluation of the currency can do very well. By the way, I pointed out in a book I just came out with about inflation, it's called uh, The Inflation Myth, and I mentioned this uh, this phenomenon. That That emerging market inflation is actually not a problem. That's correct. Provided, and this is the big proviso, you're in companies that have pricing power. Really interesting. The inflation myth and the wonderful world of deflation. Yes, and, you know, I mentioned that. The reason why I put that in, the wonderful world of deflation, because most economists hate deflation. But I argue that deflation is a good thing because deflation means that costs are going down and people are benefiting from lower and lower costs. And what I point out in the book is that Technology is making things better and cheaper uh, in terms of pricing power, in terms of uh, earning power. Um, and I've seen that in my lifetime. You know, when I had my own research firm, I had to carry around a selectric typewriter. There were no laptops, right. you know, no Word, no Excel, nothing of that sort. Um, and, when, you know, when I mentioned the young people, I had a selectric typewriter. They asked me, what is that? <laughs> so... Uh, the, the, the technology has really made life so much easier and more affordable for so many people. I don't disagree. We've been in an era for the past, I don't know, 30 years uh, that's been primarily deflation with exactly. these casual spikes of inflation. I find it kind of hard to understand how all of these older economists keep talking that we're going back to the 1970s when the world today seems so different than it was back then. Exactly, exactly. You talk to any young person, you realize that they are even benefiting more because they know how to use this technology better than old-timers like me. <laughs> so before I get to my favorite questions, I have one last question for you, and it has to do with back in 2009, in the middle of the financial crisis, you pretty much called the start of the new bull market. Tell us about what you were seeing at the end of the great financial crisis and what made you so confident that was a great time to jump back into equities. Well, you know, my studies showed that all of these bear markets are very short in duration. Maybe they're uh, one or two years, at most three years. Um, you know, and unfortunately, uh, many people measure a bear market from the peak of the previous bull to the peak of the next bull right. market. Uh, and that's the wrong way of measuring it. You should measure it from the peak to the bottom. And as soon as you get to the bottom and it starts moving, you're in a new bull market. And it's a wonderful time to invest because, you know, 
the percentages are in your favor. So that's what I saw. I looked at the history and I figured, hey, this is not going to last forever. Uh, people are very pessimistic. Uh, it's a great time to be investing. And it turned out to be right. And by the way, that happened three years ago, or three years ago now. Um, you know, when we had the COVID situation, it was an incredible time to invest. And you know, that was less than a year that the market uh, crashed and then started recovering. Right. That 34% drop took place over six weeks. And I think by August, we were back to break even. It was pretty, pretty exactly. impressive. We Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. I only have you for another five minutes, so let me get to my five favorite questions. I ask all my guests. You can think of this as a speed round. Uh, let's quickly run through all five of these, starting with tell us what you've been streaming uh, during the lockdown. What was keeping you entertained on either Netflix or Amazon Prime or, or whatever you were doing to entertain yourself? Well, I found that YouTube is an incredible educational Amazing. Uh, media. They're incredible uh, programs. And, of course, I also click on Bloomberg and look at news. If I want to know something about a country, I put news and in the country, and a lot of stuff pops up. So those are the two sources that I found uh, to be very, very good. Tell us about your early mentors. Who helped to shape your career? Well, John Templeton was really the man. He was an incredible investor, a wonderful person. Um, he really was an inspiration. Uh, and as you know, he lives on through his Templeton Prize. You know, Templeton Prize is larger than the Nobel Prizes. Oh, really? Uh, because, yeah, he believed that a prize for religion, for, you know, the science of religion, mm -hmm. was most important. So he said he specified that his prize should be bigger than the Nobel Prize. And, of course, it still is. They've got a, an incredible foundation. Huh. Tell us about some of your favorite books and, and what you're reading right now. Well, I just finished a book called uh, Double Entry, which is a wonderful book. You know, it sounds boring, sounds like bookkeeping, but it's not. It's about the history of the double entry accounting, but it goes into the whole revolution that took place in the Middle Ages and how uh, people in the Middle Ages adopted the Arabic script uh, and, and the, the calculations that came out of the Arab world. And uh, it was, it's an incredible book, uh, so I'm reading that. I love history. Uh, I'm also, I just started a book on 
Cleopatra, uh, not necessarily because uh, I'm fascinated by the woman Cleopatra, but by the era. It tells about what kind of environment she lived in, which is fascinating. So uh, I think Cleopatra. Great, great, let's see, Cleopatra, yeah. Uh, any others? Any longtime favorites that you really uh, uh, want to reference? Well, I also like uh, books about archaeology. So I've been reading a number of books on particularly Latin American archaeology because I think it's a lot in Latin America has been overlooked. You know, there's so much uh, emphasis on Egyptian archaeology, but I think uh, Latin American archaeology is incredibly fascinating. Hmm, really intriguing. Uh, what sort of advice would you give to a recent college graduate who is interested in a career in either investing or emerging market and frontier market investing? Well, first of all, travel. I mean, you're young. You can get out. You can travel to all these countries, and that's a tremendous learning experience uh, to go to these different countries. And stay humble. You know, Listen to what other people are saying. Read as much as you can. And keep on asking questions. Don't think you have all the answers. I remember John Templeton once said, those people who think they have all the answers don't even know the questions. And I think young people should, you know, remember that. It's very important. And our final question, what do you know about the world of investing today that you wish you knew 35 years ago when you first started in EM Investing? It's not all in the numbers. In other words, you know, when we started, we looked at the balance sheet, the profit and loss statements, and we thought that was the most important thing. It's not. The most important thing are the people. Who is running the company? Uh, what are the associates uh, of that person doing? Uh, it's very important to get to know the people because people create wealth. Hmm. Quite fascinating. Thank you, Mark, for being so generous with your time. We have been speaking with Dr. Mark Mobius, now of Mobius Capital, previously with Franklin Templeton Investments. If you enjoy this conversation, and I do believe this is now the 400th one that showed up on iTunes, be sure and check out any of our previous 399 such discussions. You can find those at Spotify, iTunes, wherever you get your podcasts from. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at MIB podcast at Bloomberg.net. Follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. You can sign up for our daily reading list at Ritholtz.com. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack team that helps put these conversations together each week. Mohammed Ramawi is my audio engineer. Atika Valbrun is our project manager. Paris Wald is my producer. Sean Russo is our head of research. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.